If you've been coming here for a little while now, you will notice, and, you, and if you're a visitor, you may notice, all around the building, there's little pieces of white paper stuck on the wall, which tell you about the building and what it was all about. Uh, if you've got a idle 10 minutes one time, you can always have a quick look around and see what they all say. I'll summarise for you. Um, there's been three religious buildings on this site. Now, the first one was an eight-sided chapel in the 1700s. I'm not sure why they emphasised the eight-sided bit, but they always emphasise the eight-sided bit. So there's an eight-sided chapel here. Uh, John Wesley preached here. You might have heard of John Wesley. Then, uh, sometime later, they decided to expand that building and they built a big stone Methodist church like you'll often see in the centre of towns. If you've been in Sheffield, you might be familiar with the, the, the Australian restaurant called Walkabout. That's actually, back in the day, was a big stone Methodist church. Same kind of thing as that. Uh, unfortunately, they had a bit of an incident with a candle and the whole thing burned down. And they rebuilt again this building which was built in 1903. And you'll say, well, what's that got to do with what we just read from the Bible? It's because the action today is taking place in a religious building, which has been knocked down and rebuilt. And so that's where we're going to be spending quite a lot of our time today. The uh, Mark chapter 11 starts uh, on Saturday, where Jesus is... Uh, a week away, less than a week away from his death on the cross. He's travelled up from Jericho, uh, up quite a big hill into, you can see there, a place called Bethany. Bethany's about two miles from Jerusalem at that time. It's just on the other side of a hill called the Mount of Olives. They're staying with three people, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus is someone who Jesus has actually uh, raised from the dead, and so he's got a certain amount of sort of... Um, fame in the area. Uh, the, the account of Jesus' life called uh, the Gospel of John tells us that um, after they arrive in Bethany, that a lot of people turn up to see Jesus and Lazarus. You know, a bit of a, a, bit of a toss-up between who, who's more famous, the guy who's raised him from the dead and the guy who actually rose from the dead. And then the day after, they are entering Jerusalem. And you can see at the beginning of the chapter there, Jesus is riding in on a, on a colt or a donkey. And the crowds are there, and the crowds are there in front of him, the crowds behind him, and they're shouting stuff from the Old Testament, which makes it clear that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the king from long awaited from the line of David. He's the king who they've been waiting for, the king they think they deserve, the king that they want big crowds. Uh, contemporary writers at the time estimate there might have been as many as two million people in Jerusalem at this time for the Passover festival. And it, you might have noticed if we've been going through Mark that up until now Jesus has avoided public demonstrations about just the fact that he's the king. Yeah, often he's snuck away from the crowd, perhaps gone on a got in a boat and, and gone away, or gone away somewhere early in the morning. When he's healed people even, sometimes he said, don't tell anyone. That's not what's happening now. Now he's, he's, he's comfortable with this crowd around him. He's allowing this adulation. He knows that he's going to demand a response. He's going to demand a response from the religious leaders, the chief priests, 
It's going to provoke them. He's saying, okay, it's time now. Put up or shut up. And boy, they act fast. In, within only a few days, by Thursday night, they're going to be arresting him. And on Friday, trying him and crucifying him. And it's going to be the same crowd who are going to be shouting for his blood on Friday who are singing this potentially on Monday. So it's the, it's the Jewish festival of Passover, and so we're looking at this piece of, of Mark's biography of the life of, life of Jesus, this, this critical time. As I said, all, all the action, most of the action is happening around the idea of the temple. And so this afternoon we're going to look at a couple of things. We're going to look at... Um, you, Amelia, just give that a punch on for me. There we go. We're going to look at, first of all, this temple the building that we've been talking about. Uh, we're going to think about the fact that Jesus actually abolishes the temple. We're going to think about how he replaces the temple and finally how he's the saviour that we need. So we look at the temple, how Jesus abolishes the temple, how he replaces the temple and how he's the saviour who we need. So first of all, we're going to think about the temple. Just give that another move there, will you, Amelia? Thank you. Um, this is the building. Uh, sorry, this is a reimagining of the building. That is not actually the building. They didn't have cameras when that was there. Um, so let me run you through a bit of background on this. Um, Mark's readers in the first century when this, they wrote this would have been very familiar with this. But we're not, so we just need to take a moment to think about it. Um, it's a place where people went to worship God a place where people went to pray to God, a place where people went to sacrifice to God. So they were following the instructions in the Bible at this time to go and make sacrifices of various animals or perhaps of money or of grain or of wine, different things. And this is where they would go in many senses to meet God, is why they were going there. Uh, and the, the, the idea of the, the temple and the idea of that really goes back to the, cent the, to the beginning of the Bible. Uh, in one sense, the Garden of Eden was a place that was a temple. It had unhindered access to God. It's a place where uh, Adam and Eve met with him face to face. It was a place of peace. The access was simple. It was direct. However... It did not stay that way. Adam and Eve decided to build their lives on their own wisdom rather than on the wisdom of God, as we still do today. They decided they knew better, and so God throws them out of the Garden of Eden. He throws them away from that place where they could meet God. They no longer have that direct access. Uh, still in the book of Genesis, at the beginning of the, the Bible, we read a little later about a guy called Abraham. Many people think that uh, Abraham went to the place where this temple was. And this was where, you may know the story, the place where God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac. That's what some scholars believe. And you may remember from that story how at the last minute God provides a sacrificial lamb in place of his son Isaac. And so there's certainly something there that may point us towards the story today, how Jesus is actually the sacrificial lamb provided by God. 
Uh, But when God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, a little further on in the Bible, he gave instructions to Moses on building what was called a tabernacle. For tabernacle, think big fancy tent. Uh, And that travels with the people of Israel as they travel through the desert, going back towards the promised land, back towards what we now call Israel. And again, this tent was a place where prayers were prayed to God. It was a place now where sacrifices were were being made, but Moses gave instructions uh, from God about what sacrifices to make, so the sacrifice was going on here. Uh, And in this case, God was present there. There was something called, uh, I can never say the word, the the Shekiah um, presence of God, sometimes as a cloud, sometimes in the form of a flame, but God was very much in the very center of that tent, and uh, he would lead the people and he would speak to the people sometimes from that, that cloud, that presence. Um, and we might call those the tabernacle and all the, the sacrifices and that kind of stuff, the temple system of religion. Sometimes people call it that. I might, I might call it that as we go through. And once a year, the high priest of Israel is going to go into the very center of the, that tabernacle very briefly and make one sacrifice for the sins of all the people. Um, now, as the, as the Bible moves on, the people of Israel conquer uh, the land of Canaan, and King David becomes the, the king of Israel, and he buys this piece of land that the temple is on, and then his son Solomon builds the first temple. Not this temple, don't get excited, temple before this one, okay? It's very big, very ornate. And when he's completed the, the worship and all the, the sacrifices to God are going on, that, that, uh, that uh, Shekinah uh, presence has come from the tabernacle and is now in the temple, in the very middle of the temple, in the Holy of Holies. Uh, and people are going there to worship, to pray, and to sacrifice. But it doesn't stay that way, despite the fact that God had rescued his people and saved his people and blessed them, they neglected the worship of God. They preferred to worship pagan gods quite often, or certainly they just, they just went through the motions. And so the priests and even, even some of the people who claimed to be prophets became corrupt. And so despite all the encouraging and the pleading and the teaching for Israel, they, they just refused. They refused to come back to a genuine worship of God. And so, after 300 years, God punishes them. He sends the empire of Babylon to plunder the temple and demolish it. It is destroyed. Uh, The people are uh, sent away into exile. They humble themselves and they return to a genuine faith-filled worship of God and then return to Jerusalem about, about, about 70 years later and build the second temple. Uh, But the presence of God does not return. In some way, this, this, the worship of God has taken a killer blow through, through Israel's rebellion. But the prayers are there, they're worshiping there and they're making the sacrifices there. And so we get up to just before the time of Jesus, King Herod, you'll remember him, uh, decides to massively expand and overhaul this temple. And that's when it looks like that. Uh, it takes 84 years to, to do that. 
And I know some of you have been watching HS1, but HS1, man, this has got, HS1's got nothing on this. This is just way longer. Uh, and it has an enormous outer area. I'm going to try and use the pointer here, see how we get on. You can't even see that, can you? Right, there is a very... And then it's moved on. Just thank you. There's that big area, see on the top left and the bottom right. This area is called the Court of the Gentiles. Huge area to, to hold hundreds of thousands of people. Then in from that one area, the bit sort of in, right in the centre is the Court of the Jews. Only the Jewish people were allowed in there. Then you've got a big tall building in the middle. In there is the holies and the holy of holies. Only the high priest is going to be going into that area. And there's loads of meeting rooms and storehouses and all that kind of thing. So this is the temple, and it's still not finished when Jesus is there. It's still got another 32 years of construction to go. This is where today's passage, a lot of it is taking place, particularly in the court of the Gentiles. So that bit... Top left, bottom right, down there. And when he arrived, sure enough, people are worshipping there, making sacrifices, and praying with that temple system of the Jewish religion. Now, just to finish the story, I should say six years after they finished it, so it took 84 years to build, six years after they finished it, the Romans come along and destroy it and knock it down. And it has never been rebuilt. So whether we're talking about Eden, whether we're talking about the tabernacle in the desert, the first temple Solomon built, this one, this is a place where all people, not just the Jews, all people were supposed to be able to come and worship God, to pray, to make sacrifices, to atone for their sins, like, like Ben was just talking about a moment ago when he was praying, where people could express their faith in heartfelt worship. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, that is a great thing that is what God had designed it for and there were times when that was truly happening and yet by the time of Jesus it seems that this has become corrupt a place of hypocrisy a place where big profits are being made by unscrupulous people the poor were being exploited and worship had just become a formula. There was no spiritual fruit coming out of this temple. And that's why our second point, that is why Jesus abolishes the temple. Jesus abolishes the temple. So, having stood a little bit about the temple, let's talk about fig trees. Uh, I like a bit of gardening myself. I don't know how familiar you are with fig trees. Um, they're very common in Israel at this time, and people are very familiar with them, and they're very familiar with their, uh, or shall we call it, their fruiting cycle. Here's the thing, and I didn't know this. A fig tree produces two kinds of fruit. Okay? It produces, first of all, it produces a fairly small, fairly untasty fruit, I might be pronouncing this word wrong called nops or something like that. And then it generates lots of leaves. And then it generates figs, because it's a fig tree, right? So it generates figs, the other fruit. And so we see the passage here. Uh, in the passage here, uh, 
then we take it down to verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Jesus knows it's not the season for figs. So, and he's hungry, so why has he gone over to it? He knows because there's these other fruit that you would normally expect to have. Except, of course, that it didn't. It was just lots of leaves. Some people have accused, accused Jesus of being vindictive and mean to a poor tree. Uh, but that totally misses the point. If you notice, the two bits with the fig tree sit either side of Jesus in the temple. This is there as a picture to the disciples and a picture for us of the temple. If we're saying that Jesus has just been mean to a tea, we've just totally missed the point. The story is here as an object lesson to his disciples and to us. It should be producing fruit, and it isn't. It's got a lot of leaves, it looks very big and healthy and nice at first glance, but it has no purpose. It is not producing fruit. And this is Jesus' picture to say this is how the temple is. This is how the temple system is. The temple is a big, grand building. It's full of people being very busy, lots of religious activity, but there was no fruit. The priests are corrupt. The non-Jewish people who'd supposed to be pulled in over the, over the hundreds of years to worship God here, they weren't there. They'd not been reached out to by the Jewish people. The vulnerable are being exploited. No hearts are being changed. There's no real worship going on here. And so Jesus curses the fig tree to point us to the fact that he's also going to curse the temple. Not because he's mean, but because it won't change. It's corrupt. It's not bearing fruit. He's giving us a picture of what's going to happen to the temple. He's giving us a picture of what's happened, going to happen, in fact, to the whole religious system. He's going to abolish it. He's going to get rid of it. Actually, he's going to replace it with something far better. But folks, this picture is a warning to churches and even individual Christians. We cannot be complacent about this and say, oh, those terrible people. We are, we are at a great risk and temptations, whether you're talking about a church or about individual patients, to, people to go through the motions, to keep busy for Jesus, but not producing any fruit. If our hearts are not changing and growing, if our people are not hearing the word of God, if we're not loving each other, if we're not worshipping God, truly worshipping in spirit and truth, then we, like the fig tree, will wither. So, so Jesus gives, first of all, gives the, the disciples this uh, private lesson to them, this illustration of the fig tree, but then he enters the temple in the morning and he throws out uh, the merchants and the money changers uh, and, and even those using the temple as a, as a shortcut. Um, look there, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone carrying merchandise through the temple courts. And he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, all nations, notice there, not just the Jews, but you have made it a den 
of robbers. So why is Jesus doing this? Why is he into this? Uh, well, first of all, it mentions there the people selling, uh, selling uh, doves, those buying and selling as well, it says there. So, so this, is what, this is what's happening. You're supposed to go and sacrifice uh, at this time of year, particularly a lamb at the temple. Okay, one writer about 10 years after this estimates 255,000 lambs were being killed that week uh, over the Passover. So there's a lot of lambs. So what you do, you get your lamb from your flock, I was going to say herd, flock, and you take it up to Jerusalem, right? And this is supposed to be perfect, okay? It says no blemishes. It's supposed to be perfect. So you go in, and one of the jobs the priest had was to say, yeah, that's a perfect lamb. So what happens? You come up with your lamb, the priest looks at it and goes, sorry, it's not a perfect lamb. You'll have to buy one from the guys over there. All right, so you go to the guys over there, and the guys over there are selling them at 10 times, one scholar estimates, 10 times the market rate. Okay? So, so now, it might be that you're someone who is poor and you can't afford a lamb. That's why it mentions... Uh, selling doves, verse 15, particularly in uh, uh, people who, who you know, couldn't afford to bring a lamb because they're, they're really poor. Okay, you can get a dove. So you're going to go over to the person selling doves. Okay, now, in, in modern 21st century Rotherham currency, if you wanted to go down to the market and buy a dove, it would cost you around about 10p, somewhere around about that, which I think is good value. But, but if you're going to buy it from the person in the, in the temple, it's going to be three pounds. Okay? Now, that is a real markup. You thought motorway services were charging you a lot. Boy, these guys had it absolutely nailed. They were making money hand over fist. And bear in mind, the traders who are making it all are paying something a little bit underhandedly back to the priests. Yes, that's the priests who said at the beginning, yeah, that lamb doesn't look right. They, they are exploiting all the worshippers who are coming in. And that's why Jesus throws them out. Because that is a den of thieves, as it says there. But he also atta uh, attacked the money changers, what's going on there. You, he says he overturns the tables of money changers. If you imagine sort of a, a table with lots of little piles of money on it, Sticks it all up, all the coins go everywhere. What's going on there? Well, I've got here a 10p piece. Uh, on the back of the 10p piece is... Someone want to tell me what's the back of the 10p piece? A picture of the Queen. Quite right. Because this is uh, legal tender in the uh, UK at this time. I have here a US quarter. Uh, it says it's from... Wisconsin, and on the back of here there is, uh, I don't know who that is, that's probably George Washington or someone like that. Uh, if I go and try and spend that like a 10p piece in Rotherham, okay, they won't accept it because it doesn't have the Queen on the back, it has George Washington or whoever that is. And this is the same problem here. These guys, of uh, Israel has been occupied by Rome, so all the currency has Caesar on the back of it, the face of Caesar on the back, fair enough. But Caesar is claiming to be a god. Caesar's claiming to be a god, so that is blasphemy. And so the temple won't accept it. So when you go, you have to go in and you have to change your 
your quarters into 10p pieces. You have to change your, your money from one to the other. And guess what? The money changers have spotted an opportunity, and they're making about 25% of time on every one of these transactions. Good if you can get it. And so Jesus overthrows it. These guys are profiteering on people's misfortune, profiteering on people when they're coming to worship God. But that, that isn't only it. Notice there, verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts because of where the temple was. It's a shortcut. It's a shortcut to get into Jerusalem, and so people are just uh, delivering stuff through. The Amazon drivers are coming through, taking the stuff through uh, into, into the court. And Jesus is like, what are all these people doing here? They were saving a bit of time, taking a shortcut. But... I want to suggest to you the most important reason Jesus takes this action is because all this area where everybody is here, all that area with all the buying and selling and the transport going on was meant to be for the Gentiles. It was meant to be the place where the Gentiles were worshipping God and they weren't there. They weren't there because Israel had not called them in. They'd not taught the nations about God. These nations, it's clear from the beginning of the Bible, all the world is supposed to be worshipping God. All the world is supposed to be here, praying, worshipping, uh, sacrificing, the same way as the other folks. It should have been rammed with these people, and it isn't. It's rammed with people buying and selling. They'd replaced God's mission to go and reach the world with their own mission, their own mission to make money, Jesus, the, the Bible says you're supposed to look after strangers. You're supposed to look after people who are not Jewish and, and, and teach them about him. And what they're doing is they're trying to keep them out. They don't want the Romans in there. They hate the Romans. So Jesus abolishes the temple like he cursed the fig tree because it's not producing any fruit. And for enough, sure enough, AD 70, the Romans destroy it. But as I said, he doesn't just destroy it, he replaces it. And here's our, here's our third point. Jesus replaces the temple. He replaces it with something that will bear fruit for once and for all. Jesus is making it all things new. Instead of these quarter of a million lambs, never mind about I don't know how many doves, these sacrifices that are being made to atone for the sins, to, to try and somehow uh, offset God's anger against our sins, to offset somehow the very fact that we're not worthy to worship God because, because, we, we, because our hearts are, are not what they should be. Jesus is going to replace them with one last sacrifice. He's going to be the, the last lamb sacrificed under that system. The, the, the Jews will go on sacrificing for many years afterwards, not realizing what Jesus has just done. He's come, he died on the cross, so no further sacrifices are necessary. His sacrifice will completely cover all the sins of all his people 
forever. Anybody who places their trust in Jesus, anyone whose heart is changed, who receives faith in God as a free gift, who follows the commands of Jesus as as best they can, is covered. Their punishment for their sin is taken by Jesus and they never have to make another sacrifice ever again. Even more than that, he's going to replace the prayer that used to have to take place in that temple. He's going to replace the idea of where you can meet God. He's going to actually give us three opportunities, three places to do that. First of all, he's going to do it in heaven through faith in Jesus. We have direct access to God the Father. Jesus rose from the dead, as we're going to hear about when we get closer to Easter. He rose three days after he was crucified. And then he ascended physically into heaven. And the Bible says he stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. What it means is that when, what the word means is when we pray to God, Jesus joins his voice to ours talking to God. What an incredible privilege. We no longer need a priest to pray for us. We no longer need a priest to go into into this inner little room inside somewhere. We have direct access through Jesus to God the Father. In that sense, Jesus has become the temple now. In that sense, and the Bible calls Jesus now the temple. There's another opportunity. Also, we can join with other believers in Jesus, other Christians. We can pray together, we can listen to his teachings, we can sing together as disciples did. Hey, that sounds familiar. That's what we do here, what we do here on Sundays, what we do at other times in the week. Remembering the church is the people, not the building. I'm not saying we have to come to this building to do it. We do it when we're gathered together as his people. In that sense, we have become the temple. We being the church. Remember, the church is the people. But thirdly, when Jesus ascends into heaven to the right hand of God, he sends the Holy Spirit to live in his people. Acts chapter 2 says that. And so God is with us, and so we can pray on our own wherever we are. If you're praying when you drive, remember to pray with your eyes open. But wherever you are, you can, you can pray, you can worship God yourself. We can have confidence before God that we are beloved children. In this sense, we as individuals have now become the temple. And the Bible says that as well. Well, we said that the, the, the service was about, the, the message was about the Savior we need. So let's talk about the Savior we need. I said in the introduction that the crowd in Jerusalem thought that Jesus was the king they wanted. Uh, he came to Jerusalem and fulfilled that prophecy Ben read at the start of the service. Uh, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. One of the other prophets, Malachi, says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. 
There's great symbolism here. There's great, if you go back to, go back to uh, verse 8 there, many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in, in the fields. Uh, the, the branches were symbols of joy, specifically of, of salvation joy, of being saved. This is something that would uh, often be used. People would recognize that symbol in the same way that we would recognize symbols in our day. The laying cloaks on the road, that was, that was a sign of submission. That was a sign to someone who was coming in to conquer that, yeah, you're in charge, you've won, everything's okay. So this is great symbolism as they do this. The crowd were adoring Jesus, but as as well as just that that fairly generic stuff, they're saying things that specifically talk about the Messiah, specifically talk about Jesus as the chosen king of uh, the world. So you'll see there, let me read on, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a direct quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. And that's written about the Messiah. That is written about this king who has come. Uh, Hosanna literally means save now. They knew what they were saying. They knew that this, they were identifying this, this Jesus as the Messiah. The, uh, it goes on, uh, verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They knew that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. They knew that an offspring of King David, his direct ancestor, would be the Messiah. So they know all that from Scripture. But they've also seen this guy doing miracles. Many of these folks went the two miles to uh, Bethany the day before to see Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. Yeah, so yeah, they, they, know, they know about him from the Bible and they've seen what he can do. They've seen his power and his authority. So yeah, this is the Messiah. This is the Savior. But they're making some assumptions. They are putting the purposes of their life into his purposes. They're making their motivations, his motivations. And so they get some of it wrong. They're they're assuming he's going to throw out the Romans. These Romans we hate. We're assuming, they're assuming he's going to restore the nation of Israel in some way that they don't quite get. uh, uh, They're assuming he's going to restore the temple and and the religious system of the temple as well. And make that everything it was supposed to be. Jesus was the Messiah, but they have made an assumption and they're saying, they're putting that onto Jesus to make him the Messiah they want. The desire they think they deserve. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He was then and he still is. But not the one that they had wanted. Jesus came to die, like we talked about last week, for the sins of the people who will trust and believe in him. He came to be the final sacrifice we've talked about. He died so that he could stand at the right hand of the Father and intercede for us, as we talked about. 
He died so we don't have to go to the temple to pray. He died so that we don't have to face the punishment for what we have done wrong. As just as that is. That's the saviour the crowd needs. That's the saviour we need. The saviour did not come to restore the temple. He came to break it and remake it, not in cold stone but in his flesh he came to challenge our heart attitudes their heart attitudes to insist on love for our enemies to insist to the crowd that they love the romans they love the tax collectors who they despised he's the one who claimed that all his followers must have a servant heart because he was a servant and although he was a king he came in humbly on a donkey He came to attack our favourite sins, those sins we love and aren't prepared to let go. He came to attack our idols. One writer says, and I think this is so true, that Jesus comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. If we're comfortable, he will afflict us. If we are afflicted, he will comfort us. This is the saviour the crowd needed. This is the saviour we need, but not necessarily the one we want always not necessarily the one we think we deserve so some preachers will go to maybe verse 23 and and verse 24 there and 25 and say all you've got to do is to have faith and pray and god's going to give you everything you need everything you want he's going to say if you have that kind of faith you will have wealth, you will have prosperity. You're going to be healed of that disease. (coughs) You're going to have that family you deserve. You're going to have the relationships that show you to be the person you are, the wonderful person you are. They are misreading that passage. This is in accordance with what God wills for us. Jesus is saying through faith we align our prayers with God. And then it happens. So yes, have faith. Yes, pray. We're going to do that in that new temple we talked about. But what those preachers are telling us is that is a Jesus who does not exist. That is not the real Jesus. That is the Jesus that our hearts want, that our hearts desire. But it's not the real Jesus. He did come and die, like we said last week, he died as a ransom for many. He's made a, a new temple out of his body, out of the church, out of ourselves. We have direct access to him. But he is also not always an easy God to follow. Sometimes the cost is high. Sometimes the cost is very high. Sometimes what we see in this life is only suffering and persecution. Certainly we will all see some suffering and persecution. Following him is rewarding. Following him is an abundant life, but it's not always the life we want. And sometimes people find that out and they reject him. Sometimes people discover that And they don't want to know him anymore because they think he's a mean, nasty God. 
the same God who would curse a tree for no reason. Somehow they believe that the teapot that the potter has made has a right to say to the potter, you're not the right, you're not the right potter. What have, you, what have you done? This is crazy. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be a teapot. I want, I want to be a sugar bowl. And, 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 the, and, the, and the potter, and, and by the way, potter, you know, you've got it all wrong. What are you doing creating teapots? What, we, what the world needs is sugar bowls. And what is the potter thinking? Looking at this teapot thinking, who are you? How often do we want to define God according to our own desires as opposed to seeing the God who is real, the God that the Bible tells us about? That's the only one who can save us. That's the Jesus we need. That's the saviour we need. Not the one we're making up and dreaming. We see him in the Gospels. We see him reflected in the, in the letters that come after the Gospel. This is the saviour we need. This is the saviour the crowd needed. If today you think, if you're disappointed with God today, if you're disappointed with Jesus, because your life is not what it should be, turn again to this real Jesus in here. Not that Jesus who you think has let you down. God does not let you down. Jesus does not let you down. He's died for you. He's died in agony on a cross for you. Why would he want to let you down? Turn to him again discover him anew he is the savior who we desperately need let's pray together heavenly father it was it was two thousand years ago and, and it can be sometimes hard to put ourselves there some of the details are, are unfamiliar to us We, we don't know what Jerusalem looked like. The, the world 2,000 years ago was very different. And yet, the attitudes of the people around Jesus are exactly the same as ours far too often. Well, the disciples are thinking, we relate to, because we know we would have been thinking similar things. Well, the crowd was shouting, whether it's Hosanna or whether it's kill him, are things that we would have been shouting. The Bible shows us our heart attitudes. The Bible points us towards your son. Lord, help us once again, or perhaps, Lord, help us for the first time to turn to this Jesus, the only one who can save us. Amen.